Salmons, this is Year Zero. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Jonathan Munier. Jonathan is a respiratory therapist during COVID-19. So, there's all kinds of good treats in this episode. But first, RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. Go to RyanBunting.com. Ryan Bunting is a great anarcho-capitalist and libertarian, and he's also a great graphic designer. He designed my podcast logo and Pete Quinones' podcast logo for Freeman Beyond the Wall. So go to RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. And buy his fucking book. Thank you, my buddy, Tom Burton, for the music. Enjoy the show. Okay, I'm here with Jonathan Munyer. What's going on, man? Oh, man, just like I said, it's uh, it's been another busy day. Um, you know, basically just woke up again at uh, 3 in the morning and uh took a nap a little bit ago and you know, working night shift for so many years uh i'm not sure do you normally do your your job throughout the day or the evening i try to i try to just stick to the days anymore man i my body just can't take the because the way our way our schedule set up we get 10 hours off in between shifts okay so it your your, your schedule ends up rotating Right. So you do, you, you, you're going for, you go for 11, 12 hours, you take 10 hours off and 10 hours later. And then before long, you're, you've gone from six in the morning, starting your day at six in the morning to starting your day at two in the afternoon. And when I was younger, I had no issues with it, but here the last few years, I'm like, man, I can't do this anymore. You just, it burns you out. Oh, I completely feel you. I've, um, I've been working night shift for the past, geez seven eight ish so years and uh i work basically 12 hour night shifts uh like three night shifts a week so i'm constantly going back and forth between a, a day and a, and a night shift type of deal like i don't have like an actual sleep schedule anymore so yeah i mean whenever i wake up i just wake up and i can't go back to sleep but it, inevitably it seems like um geez sex amount of hours later and I'm ready for a nap, you know, it's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, man, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's just, um, like I said, I'm, I've got on my eight week or, or not eight week, but eight day, uh, stretch off before I start my last two weeks at the current contract that I'm working. Um, and, uh, basically just, I'm hoping to have a few weeks off and then heading back out West again. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's always things going on every day. Um, you know how it is. Right. Whenever you finally do have a, a stretch of days off or something, it's like it's hard to uh, to not be motivated to get, at least get some things done. 
because you know you're stuck on the road or you're stuck doing other things you only have a limited amount of time it's easier to be focused whenever you have a, a work environment like that i think than it is sometimes mm-hmm. even just working a full-time job at home where you're home a lot so right well and and for those that have never heard of you and don't know who you are uh just give us a little background on 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 who you are what you do and and all that good jazz sure man um yeah, that, I mean, odds are pretty much everybody's not heard of me. So, <laughs> I am a, uh, I am not a, a super well-known individual by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I do, uh, I, I, I definitely consider myself uh, a jack of all trades and definitely a master of none. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I'm a respiratory therapist. Uh, I also am a bass player, an audio engineer, a podcast host. I also occasionally uh, do DDP yoga instructing, and I'm also a licensed falconer. I do all kinds of stuff. Uh, so basically, um, yeah, with, with the respiratory therapy gig, I've been, let's see, I've been doing that now for almost 16 years, and I hold the majority not not that this necessarily matters but just to give people an extra bit of, gra- of background on my on my history I, I hold almost I think all but one of the credentials that my profession offers from our credentialing agency I also hold um, another credential from a different agency um, which is a specialization in neonatal pediatric transport um, I Worked the first, geez, 12 years of my career mainly doing neonatal and pediatric demographics, uh, mostly neonatal. I worked in uh, a few level three NICUs and also did neonatal pediatric transport for a couple years. Um, then I, I needed a change uh, to make a very long story short with that. I just, I just needed a, a, a change in scenery, so I decided to branch into sleep medicine I did that for a couple years and uh, tested people for sleep apnea and then, you know, did follow-up titration studies to see what kind of pressures would work for their, you know, CPAP and BiPAP machines that they would end up needing. And then, um, then the pandemic hit <laughs> and, uh, and as, as much as, um, you know, that still, I think is, is still necessary. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, you're not going to die overnight typically from sleep apnea it's more of a quality of life thing and a much you know gradual like over a long amount of time type of thing uh with with that so basically whenever the pandemic hit i was lumped into the group of of uh, quote-unquote non-essential um testing or or non-essential jobs you know with a lot of the outpatient procedures and things like that that a lot of hospitals were ixnaying Um, towards the beginning of the pandemic and uh, subsequently kind of shot themselves in the foot with (laughs) on, on that. But uh, so basically I was uh, left with a, with a choice. I could either continue to kind of hang around and wait for my health system that I worked for to come up with a better solution and how they were handling all of the people that were employed under them you know, that were technically non-essential like me, because they basically shut down my sleep lab that I was working at. And so we were all 
you know, just kind of left hanging for a little bit. They, I mean, get to give them credit, they tried to come up with solutions at the time to get us hours and keep us working. But the only problem was, is at the time, the, the solution was to try and absorb us into the hospitals, you know, working in, in their actual respiratory staff again. The problem was, is that the hospitals were so slow. I mean, there was hardly any work for even their normal staff therapists, let alone, you know, extra supplemental staff that they were just trying to find work for like us. So that kind of worried me a little bit. And I decided, well, I'm not just going to sit around here and wait for, you know, the other shoe to drop, so to speak. So I'm like, I'm going to try my hand at this whole traveling gig. And so that kind of began my adventures of the last year. <laughs> so is that is that right. uh, kind of enough of a, of a background, you think, on that? Or um, do you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that gives everybody a, a good idea of where you're coming from and what your qualifications are to, to be talking about these subjects and and um, all that, which is, you know, ultimately in today's society everybody's appealing to authority so just doing your own research isn't good enough for everyone mm -hmm. they they want to make sure that that you're following the science so no i got you and yeah unfortunately the the follow-up kind of asterisk mark to that is the irony is is a lot of the the professionals and the experts that they're listening to and getting a lot of these directives from and and basically just, you know, <laughs> just not even questioning in a lot of situations don't even take care of patients. You know, they're they're just they're just, you know, they just, you know, do studies and this, that and the other. But, you know, the, the irony is, is I think you'll if you the more actual practitioners that work in a hospital environment or have worked with the patient demographic that, you know, has been predominant over the last year for sure will you know probably tell you a lot of the same you know concerns and just just overall I don't know just there, there's there's a lot of, of of I think very um necessary questioning that needs to be happening with a lot of the stuff but mm -hmm. there's a lot of things too that have basically been hidden in plain sight you know that have just I don't, you know, I, I don't, and I'm not going to sit here and say that the world as a whole has purposely misled anybody or try and necessarily incriminate anybody or anything like that. I'm just saying it's just, it, there, there's definitely some things they could have clarified that could have quelled, I think, a lot of the, um, I guess, the innate fear that developed from a lot of this stuff um, mm -hmm. in the beginning, and they, they chose not to do that for whatever reason. And they're honestly still not choosing yeah. not to do that in a lot of cases. So, well, I was listening to, um, I don't really know how to pronounce his name, right? I think it's Knut Witkowski and he's a world renowned virologist. And he was, he was coming, he was doing an interview and the guy at, asked him, he was like, well, a lot of what you're saying doesn't line up with what Dr. Fauci is saying, what, what we're being told. So how do you explain that? And, and he said, well, I'm not, I'm not employed by the government. So I get to actually do science. So <laughs> There's a lot to be said for that. 
And, um, you know, you also kind of have to be careful, too, on, you know, who you're listening to. And and I'm just going to go ahead and give this disclaimer right up front. And I, I did this with uh, with David's podcast, too, and when I was talking to Dave the other day. You know, I mean, I'm just one guy. Um, I've... I will say, um, just to give an just to give people an idea of, I mean, I've I've worked in Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Wyoming, and Montana. I'm pretty sure those are the pretty much the main states um, over this past year. So, I mean, I'm one guy. I've I've worked in six different states, but I mean, nobody has to take what I say as gospel by any stretch, you know, I think the purpose of your podcast and especially, you know, David's podcast and stuff too, is just, I just want people to think, you know, I want people to, you know, use a little bit of basic logic, common sense. If you come to your own conclusion that you don't agree with what I say or what some of these other people are saying, then, then fine. At least you thought, at least you, you know, at least you, used your brain and tried to exercise some degree of common sense and logic and try to do your own research instead of just parroting what some of these people have been saying for the last year. So, well, I know, I know with my audience, a lot of them that I engage with and interact with, they're like me. They're like what we're seeing on the ground, what we're actually experiencing and witnessing is completely different than what we're being told and and we're just like none of this is right like something is wrong you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh and there's there's a lot of things um that i've seen over the past year that if uh if if i would have been told that they were going on before I started working around the stuff, I would have been skeptical as well. But mm-hmm. one thing that I said right at the beginning of all this, whenever I initially took that first travel contract to New York and then subsequently got canceled, I told myself right after that conversation with the recruiter that no matter what happened over from, from that moment on, everything that I was going to think, feel, and talk about, you know, and, and share were going to be things that I saw for myself, heard for myself, and kind of experienced for myself. And a lot of the things that I'm going to end up probably talking with with you and your audience here are, are not things that are uncommon knowledge for the most part. They're, um, right. I mean, the, the, they're things that can be found really easily if you just talk I mean, if you're, di- I mean, heck, if, if, if you're personal, you know, if you're a family physician, most of these, most of your listeners, family physicians, if you just ask them a couple of the main points that I'm going to discuss probably here, if they're real and honest with you, they will probably confirm the things that I said. I'm, I'm not trying to speak for anybody else other than myself, but I mean, heck, I, I had a follow up uh, my annual physical with with my doc yesterday, and he was honestly echoing a lot of the same things that I said. And you know, he was 
initially kind of as dumbfounded as I was that the stuff was going on. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just <laughs> just taken into consideration that not everything that you've been told over the last year is a hundred percent accurate. It's not necessarily lying because they pretty much made it to where the way they've put things out in the media and stuff isn't necessarily lying. It's just not up front, you know. Um, it's kind of like I was talking the other day. It's, it's it's more in the terminology and how the terminology is laid out than anything. So right, lies by omission a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But um, well, let's just dive right in. So one of the things you wanted to make sure that you, you know, put out there out front was COVID is real. And uh, when, when you were talking to David, that was that was one of the first things you said was COVID is real. Oh, yeah. So give us a little what what is it like what's going on with this disease? And, and the reason I asked that or virus or whatever it is, the reason I asked that is because my dad got sick. Right. Mm-hmm. My dad got sick and he was sick for about a month. Mm hmm. And he was diagnosed with COVID, but he didn't have a respiratory symptoms. He didn't have flu-like symptoms. He had, it was like a stomach bug that lasted for like 30 days. He lost like 40 pounds. He couldn't keep down, keep any food down. And here we are. I mean, I guess he started feeling better in November. So what is that? Six months, seven months later, whatever. And he's, he's still has hardly any, any energy. He might be 70%. I mean, it just, so what are we dealing with? Why, why is it affecting people that way? What is this? Well, that's a good question, man. Um, I wish I, I could really <laughs> honestly tell you 100%. The, 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 the problem is, is that they don't, they still don't even really know yet why it, it does what it does, except for the fact that it was such a new virus that everybody, I mean, it was going to affect everybody different because every bug known to man pretty much for the most part to some degree affects everybody different anyway. I mean, one person can get the flu and have nothing but respiratory symptoms. Another person can get the flu and and have other symptoms. I mean, the problem I think initially was is that the same symptoms that you have with COVID, I mean, there are a lot of the same symptoms that you have with the flu and, and other bugs. Um, the problem was, is that people were just having the symptoms and having suffering from the stuff for just a lot longer than, than typical, which I think was the first clue that something wasn't quite right whenever all of this stuff first started dropping. So, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of you know, it's just a different kind of bug. It's a new bug. So therefore it's going to have a much wider variety of responses for a much wider variety of people. The one thing that I can tell you for sure that has been consistent that I've noticed with the media and what I've observed and what's been reported is that it, it, it does really hit the elderly demographic very hard. You know, you're 70 plus, you know, age demographic and it hits people really hard that are immunocompromised already and especially obese or have other like comorbidities you know or other conditions those are the people that right. that are i mean that that's that's one very 
um, those are the, the major commonalities as far as what I've personally seen and what's been reported in the media. And you're always going to have, with any disease, pretty much, you're, you're always going to have your outliers. You know, you're always going to have your 20-something-year-old that randomly gets something, goes to the ICU, and then dies. I mean, that's, that's the flu. That's any bug, you know, and, right. and this was going to be no exception. And, and I've seen some, some fairly young people that have been pretty sick with this. I've also seen some really some older people that turned out to be just fine, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I to answer your question, I they still don't really know exactly, you know, all the, especially with 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 the things starting to mutate now. Um, you know, I mean, I know what they've been finding with some of these other like mutations too is that it's more virulent, like it spreads more, but it doesn't necessarily make you sicker. So, you know, I mean, the thing that that's the problem is, is they're, they're just starting to kind of learn some of the tendencies after a year, but now it's already starting to change. (laughs) So, so they still don't know exactly what we're, what we're dealing with, um, to a, you know, an exact degree, but, um, I wish I could be a little bit more specific, but I have to be honest and just say, you know, it, it it's just it's kind of a crapshoot. I mean, the majority of yeah. the majority of people are presenting with with respiratory symptoms, but the majority of people, like myself, when when I had it, I had it back in December. Um, when I had it, I kind of had similar to what your um, you said it was your dad, right? Yeah, 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 I, I kind of had some GI stuff for a few weeks, and then I had mm-hmm. um, like a week or so where I really didn't have any symptoms, and then I it started having basically the equivalent of a bad sinus infection, and I had gotten tested with the rapids, which are completely worthless, by the way. I have no, I hold no um, faith or validity hardly at all anymore in these rapid tests uh they're they suck uh, i tested negative mm. twice with the rapids before i i tested positive with the um cephaid I, I i have a hard time pronouncing that word but it's it's the other more in-depth nasal pharyngeal swab that they do that test and okay and uh, i actually had the sec the second uh rapid i had done i had the other swab done at the same time and the other one they had to send into the state for whatever reason. And <laughs> and I tested negative. And so I, was, I wasn't running a high enough fever to not work at the time. So I ended up working, and I was still in Wyoming at the time. I ended up working for four days in a row, getting <laughs> with overtime with it. I was positive. I, had to, I didn't know until the following Monday because they tested me on Christmas Eve, I think, which was like a Friday or something. And uh, since right. it was the weekend, it, it was the state. I wasn't going to get the results back, so I ended up working like four days and four nights in a row, and ended up finding out on the following Monday I was positive. So I had already worked like four days at least being positive, and you know. So, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, basically, it was for me. It was just a bad sinus infection, and and other people that I talked to or have worked with that also worked for, you know, some of the different state agencies 
said that the majority of, of the people that were presenting were presenting like it was just a bad sinus infection. And, um, right. you know, your, your more severe cases were usually almost always in that demographic that were either elderly, obese, mm. had other issues going on, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. And yeah, my dad is, is diabetic. He's in his 60s. That's another big one. And it was, it was really strange um, because my mom took care of him the entire time. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he was sleeping 15 hours a day and she was taking care of him the whole time. She never tested positive, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, it's, it's, she's just, I, I don't know, one of those people that's completely immune to it for whatever reason. Well, and I mean, does your, does your mom do any of the day-to-day -day preventative stuff? And does she have any of those other like comorbidities or other health conditions? Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing what a, what a simple multivitamin, some extra vitamin D and, and not being unhealthy in general will do for you. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a, yeah. it's overlooked a lot. So. Yeah. But so while, while you were, while, while this was all taken off, you, you were traveling around. And you had told you had mentioned earlier about getting you were going to go to New York. Uh, so tell the audience about that story, because that when I heard you say that, I was I was like, none of this doesn't even make sense. Like, I don't even understand how you, you know, as a respiratory therapist could have even, you know, absorbed that information, you know. Yeah, it, it was it was tough. <laughs> it still is tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in hindsight, after hearing some of the stories that I've heard from different travelers that I worked with that did work there, I'm kind of glad that it worked out that I didn't go there. But basically right. what happened was once I decided I was going to do the traveling gig, I um, got on the phone and got with a company did the application process, yada, yada. And, uh, basically they, they accepted me. I signed the contract and I was slated to go out and work in a, in a part of New York, uh, for one of the health systems out there about four days before I was supposed to fly out there and leave. I was called by the recruiter and told that my contract along with a lot of others, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of these contracts were being canceled. And, you know, leading up to that point, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out like, cause it was my first experience with doing a, a travel contract in healthcare. You know, you, you're still learning the ins and outs of, of what you're protected by, what you're not protected by, you know, what you're covered and stuff. So I was under the impression that I would still be getting paid something, you know, it's a, but what a lot of people don't realize with, with healthcare contracts is they can cancel you up until the day that you show up and they owe you nothing. Like you don't, you don't get a penny. They don't owe you a penny, you know, nothing. So, she cancels, she calls and, and says that, that all these contracts, including mine, are canceled, you know, four days before I'm supposed to leave. And I'm like, wow, um, 
I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm still going to be getting paid at least like a couple weeks or so, right? She's like, no, you would have had to start working before, you know. So I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know. So I'm I'm kind of starting to panic because it, by that point it had been, you know, two three weeks, and you know I'm not able to cl- claim unemployment and stuff because I technically didn't. Right. Get, laid off like the health system that I worked for they they were refusing to lay people off but they were making the employees make the decision on whether or not they wanted to stick it out or you know go and find work elsewhere so I'm starting to freak out a little bit and I'm like well I mean out of curiosity I mean why why did these all these contracts get canceled and she was just like well um what I was told by the healthcare system that had all these contracts what they told us is that 80 percent of the people that they had that were you know down with covid or you know 80 percent of their patients that had covid that that they were taking care of were pretty much they, they were dying so they didn't feel like they needed the extra help anymore and i was just like okay that uh that reeks of complete and total um, BS, you know, to me, uh, but whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, do you not still have to take care of people until they die too? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, even, even if that was true, yeah. um, you know, which it's whatever, I mean, she's just a recruiter, you know, I mean, you're, you can't sit right. there and, and argue and, you know, it's what it is, what it is at that point, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. So, I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. But still, I mean, as a medical professional, you you've dedicated you're dedicating your life to this particular agenda to helping people. That's what you want to do, and you're being told that you can't do your job because well, they're going to die anyway. You know, like whatever. Well, so well, why why offer them any kind of you know medical care if they're going to die anyway? Yeah, and and. The, the thing is, is there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that, that has, have been told in the media, especially when all this stuff started that were like, they weren't necessarily untrue, but they weren't like happening in the frequency that you're being led to believe. Like you remember like hearing yeah. in, in, when this, all this stuff started is, Oh, we're in such dire straits. We're, we're, um, waving, you know, licenses, which they were, um, you know, and we're also uh, reinstating retired licenses or, you know, uh, licenses to retired people that want to come back and work, you know, and whatever. So you're being basically led to believe that like grandma and grandpa are just scooping them up off the streets. And, you know, if, if they're willing to work, then then, you know, they can come work and whatever and this, that and the other. And right. and so that was another question I had for this recruiter was like, OK, so what about all the reports then that they're just so drowning for help there and stuff that like, this doesn't make any sense. Like if they're hurting for help this bad, you know, and they're like bringing all these people out of retirement and stuff to come work and whatever, then, and she's like, well, don't believe everything that you've been told in the media. As far as that goes, that's, that's kind of being over exaggerated. Um, you know, I mean, you still, you still have to, (laughs) <laughs> you still have to be able to keep up with a workload and you still have to have the skill set 
and they're not just taking everybody off the street to to work in these play or work for these agencies and stuff. And so, right. And I was just like, okay, right. so I mean, which one is it? You know, what 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 reality what reality is it here? You know, and um, you know, I mean, the thing is, is is New York wasn't the only state that was getting like government, you know, state government funding to bring in people for these rumored like exorbitantly exorbitantly high um you know contracts i mean healthcare healthcare workers were making some some big money if they were willing to travel but those contracts weren't as frequent as what i think a lot of people were led to believe um and a lot of those contracts were only that big because they were being state government funded so the irony is is that a lot of the instances the hospitals weren't even really having to fit the majority if if hardly any of the bill for those people's services. It was the government funding those contracts with the, uh, with the, uh, travel contract companies. So, right. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of semantics and logistics going on, you know, kind of behind the scenes. But to me, it just didn't make any sense. You know, if, if you're hurting that bad, whatever, then, you know, why the hell are you cancel all these contracts? And the only thing I could come down to is the fact they just didn't want to pay for them anymore but you know it's it's neither here nor there i i hate to speculate on that too much but bottom line is is it is what it is you know so well yeah that was and that was that that was one of the questions i had and i doubt you have the answer for it so i mean i'm not asking you but one of the questions that led me down was who canceled these contracts was it cuomo that canceled them was it de Blasio? Was it, was it the hospital who canceled these contracts? And I'm thinking if it comes out that, that Cuomo, which I wouldn't put it past him or de Blasio for saying something like this. If, if, if it comes out that Cuomo said, well, we don't need all these, this extra additional help because 80% of these patients are going to die anyway. I mean, you add that on top of the entire scandal of him putting uh, COVID positive people in nursing homes and just creating this, this devastating effect in the nursing home industry. I mean, this guy is just on the line for so much murder at this point. It's insane. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, without, without speculating too much into the, the political side of all of that, the only thing I can say from what I've experienced in, in a year's experience of traveling now, which isn't a ton, but I've, I've, I've learned a lot in how these contracts work. The hospital usually right. has to be the one that cancels them. Um, they're the ones that usually deem whether or not they need the staffing help anymore or not. And it's their responsibility yeah. to cancel them if they don't want to be on the hook for them. So, I mean, whether or not that decision is partially made because they're not receiving X amount of funding anymore or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be, that's a whole other issue. But in a nutshell, usually it's the hospital that decides that they want to cancel those contracts. So now when this happened, was this during that period of time last year when, when they were putting everybody on respirators? Yeah, this was, this was in April. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I just saw a story a few days ago that they admitted that they knew respirators were going to kill a lot of people, but they felt it was necessary to slow the spread of the disease throughout the hospitals. Well, and that's, and that's why I said, whenever I 
you know, once again, without throwing throwing shade or throwing stones or trying to necessarily incriminate anyone that was involved in working, you know, and and doing some of these things. Because I mean, the 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 truth of the matter is is that everybody at the beginning of the pandemic was going off of what had already been experienced in like Italy and in like New York and what they were doing once I, once I heard what they were doing in a lot of instances from a respiratory therapist standpoint, it really makes no sense what they were doing. You wouldn't ever do that on a normal basis. So basically the only logical conclusion that you can come to is that they were doing a lot of these things basically out of fear. You know, they there was a lot of unknowns at the time um, with the virus, and I think there was so much propaganda being put out there that was causing so much fear in the minds of these practitioners and doctors, etc., that the first instinct was to basically intubate anybody that comes in presenting with any of these uh, symptoms, which ironically enough, like I said earlier, are symptoms that you can, (laughs) you can have in a lot of other, um, you know, diseases or illnesses or whatever. But, but what they were doing basically was, yeah, I mean, they, they were intubating a lot of people coming in that really shouldn't have been. I mean, there's a, there's there's kind of a, a process that you that you go through typically whenever you decide how to treat people as far as like whether or not you're going to non-invasively or invasively, you know, ventilate someone, et cetera, et cetera. Do you want me to go into that at all or do you think it's unnecessary? No, you can, because I think it's I think it's important to understand um, what was being considered when they were when they were taking these steps right okay well i mean for and for everybody that doesn't know um and you wouldn't know because like the profession really didn't get much publicity ironically enough during all of this especially for it being a respiratory pandemic um you know it's like i mentioned in david's podcast i don't necessarily feel like you know i need any special thank yous or treatment or whatever for doing what i do it's not what i'm about but it would have been nice for the profession had we gotten a little bit more recognition in what we do during all of this because the respiratory therapists are the ones that manage the vents. And in a lot of places, we also put in the airways. We're the ones that intubate in a lot of places. Uh, we're the ones that draw the, the arterial blood gases and run the, the, the labs in a lot of places that, so we can tell what a patient's breathing status is. Uh, we're the ones that you know, the, unfortunately, most of what people know our profession for is just basically giving a bunch of breathing treatments, you know, nebulizers. And really, that's that's the least important thing that we really do. It's the thing that we do the most, but it's actually the least important. So and we're also the ones that make recommendations on whether or not um, someone should be intubated or not or non-invasively ventilated with either CPAP or, you know, BiPAP or uh, high flow nasal cannula, whatever. But from a respiratory standpoint, all that being said, from a respiratory standpoint, basically 
it doesn't make any sense to just straight up intubate somebody just because they come in with some of these symptoms, but they're still okay at the time. And what you said is unfortunately kind of true because what they were afraid of is, and the reason why they weren't doing non-invasive ventilation a lot in the beginning of all of this is they were afraid that the particulates and the droplets were going to get shot everywhere and everyone was going to catch it and get sick. And for those that really don't understand much of this, whenever you intubate somebody, I mean, you're putting in an artificial airway, you're, you're putting in that endotracheal tube, that thing gets connected to a circuit that's closed and connects to a ventilator that has a filter on it, you know, which once again, I mean, once, once a piece of equipment like that's kind of exposed to that, you're, you're going to end up having to, to clean it better in a lot of cases anyway. But anyway, whenever you hook a patient up to this vent, it, it provides a closed circuit so that a lot of those particulates aren't spread anywhere near as easily. So, you know, the, the ventilator is the one, it, the ventilator is the, the thing that, that is pushing pressure into the patient's lungs and then letting them exhale. And it's doing it all internally within a, a circuit, you know, a breathing circuit. And it just, the, the pressure kind of goes back and forth within the machine. So it doesn't, unless you mm-hmm. disconnect the patient from the circuit, it's not, those particulates and stuff aren't going to get out very easily. Whereas if you, if you ventilate somebody non-invasively, like via a mask or something, those, I mean, a mask, you can, you can form a a decent seal with it, but inevitably there's going to be, you know, one through the, either through the exhalation port in that circuit or through other instances, those particulates are going to get out. I mean, there's no avoiding it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so does that, is, was that layman enough you think for, for everybody as far as, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I get it. Um, it, it, my, my, my question would, would then be who was making this call? A lot of the doctors and, and they, and they were, and they were just telling, the respiratory therapist, even if the respiratory therapist was saying, I don't think it's necessary. Well, I mean, so going back to it, basically there was a lot of initially when all this stuff happened um, and a lot of this, the information started coming out with a lot of this stuff. Like I said, there was a lot of fear and concern that everybody was going to get sick from this. And then, not mm-hmm. only were people like fearing for their lives, so to speak, because of what was being, you know, spread uh, information wise, but you know, the hospitals were also, sorry, I, I chuckle about, I chuckle every time I hear that phrase. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, yeah, I know. But I, I think about, I think about a cop murdering somebody or something, you know, like <laughs> I feared for my life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean the, 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 the sad truth of it though, is that's, really what it boiled down to people were scared that they were going to get sick themselves. And then the hospitals were scared that they were eventually weren't going to have anybody to take care of any of these people because all our people were going to get sick. So I heard with, I mean, I heard with my own ears, certain people, you know, particularly like some ER docs say, well, I mean, if they come in presenting like this, we're just going to go ahead and intubate them. So we don't have to deal with any of this. And 
Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, from a fear standpoint, it makes sense. But from, um, from a practitioner standpoint and a healthcare standpoint, it doesn't make any sense because. Yeah. It, it, it seems like that would make, that would just prolong the, the problem. Well, and, and, and it did. And they, I think that, and to their credit, they kind of came to their senses quicker, you know, unfortunately not quick enough in some instances, I think. Yeah. But once again, I'm not trying to throw shade or throw stones. I mean, right, it, it right. is what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking bad about anybody. I'm just simply stating the reality. And, and the reality was, is that they were, yeah, putting in artificial airways and ventilating people. And basically, in a lot of cases, I mean, more or less having to let a lot of those people just kind of go, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, yeah. I, there, there were there were therapists that that I talked to during my travels, who worked in New York, and I mean they were telling me that, I mean some uh, some nights they were going out and having to to check on fifty different vent patients, just just them, and it, that workload is insane. Like you're there's there it's impossible. Like you're not you're not going to you're not going to understandably be able to give any degree of of reasonable care to anybody if you have 50 vents that you have to check i mean a fairly high load you know for one pay for one person to be able to do everything you need to do you know i mean would be you know <sighs> i mean we're, we're talking like you know, nine, ten. I mean, there's places sometimes you'll go out with, you know, uh, somewhere in the teens or whatever as far as your. But I mean, like that you're getting at, once you hit that point, like you're getting to the point where you're you're really stretched very thin, you know. And I mean, to, doing what you're supposed to be able to do. And I mean, typically most places you, you check a ventilator, you know, every three to four hours you know, in a lot of places, sometimes they even are more overkill and, and they'll have you check them every two hours or whatever. But I mean, some of these travelers that I encounter, they said that basically they were told at the start of their shift, if you can just do one vent check on each of these patients, like we'll consider it, you know, like that, that's, that's all you can do. You know, if you can just do one vent check for each of these 50 patients and, you know, just try and get through them all for your 12 hour shift, then, you know, then that's about all you're going to be able to do. And right. that's nuts. You know, I mean, yeah. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to incriminate anybody or, or talk bad about anybody, but like putting like any, like nobody is going to be successful under those circumstances, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yeah, no, for sure. So, but <clears throat> I mean, basically, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just, more or less, there there was a lot of things that that were done. I mean, like there there were patients that were coming in and only requiring like a couple of liters like nasal cannula flow and stuff. I mean, just basically oxygen in her nose and stuff. Going and present with shortness of breath or cough or whatever that would that would then get intubated and then shipped up to ICU and then extubated like an hour or two later because they go up to ICU and they'd be like, why are these people intubated? <laughs> you know, like these people don't need to be intubated. Yeah. And then, you right. know, once the patient starts waking up from sedation, 
and I mean, and I'm I'm right. Let me let me specify this. This this particular instance of what I'm talking about right now, I actually heard a little bit later in the timeline in places other than New York. Okay, this was like after they started mm-hmm. kind of figuring out that, um, you know that that wasn't the best way to do things. <laughs> so, right. like, you know, I have other friends that work in other hospitals that I've worked with throughout my career, and and they were telling me like they said they 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 were some of these ER docs, for example, would intubate these people and they go up to ICU. And at this particular place, for example, the, the, uh, intensivists that were the doctors in the ICU, uh, they were also pulmonologists. So that that's always kind of a good combination, you know, to have, but these patients would get up there and their blood gases, their, their labs, like their, you know, to tell whether or not their breathing status was good or bad, maybe like normal, <laughs> or even like better than normal, like like bad the other direction, like you're overventilating somebody right. because they don't need the extra help, you know. Mm-hmm. And they'd be they'd extubate these people like an hour or two later. The patient comes up, comes you know, fully awake again from sedation, realizes that they just had this breathing tube put in them, and now they've got not only do they have um, a, a normal hospital charge now for being admitted. But now they've got an ICU charge plus a ventilator charge and stuff that they're going to have to end up paying for that they didn't even necessarily need because of these decisions being made. You know, so that's a whole other can of worms right there, too. And, um, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, I think that there was also a lot of patients that were put in ICUs at first too. And don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there's some sick people from this stuff. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, yeah, I'm, yeah, for real. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that there weren't plenty of sick people. During, I mean, I saw it for myself. I mean, there was a lot of sick right. people during this. I'm not going to take anything away from yeah. that, but there were also a lot of not so sick people in this, <laughs> like almost yeah. way more. I saw way more not sick people than, you know, with, with COVID diagnoses in, in, in the hospital that were being kind of mm-hmm. kept in the hospital for X amount of days, um, whether that be in the floor and the ICU, um, you know, and, and I, the, the unfortunate part of that too, is I think that, you know, a lot of the hospitals lost so much money initially because they got rid of their elective procedures and everything else that they like hospitals make most of their money from surgeries and elective procedures. They don't make most of mm-hmm. their money from hospital stays for the most part. Mm-hmm. So yeah. basically, like, because they got rid of all their elective procedures and, and did away with all that because of the risk of the extra exposure in their mind, you know, they lost a lot mm-hmm. of money. I mean, there was a lot of health systems that were borderline bankrupt, um, you know, towards the beginning of last year. So I, I, <laughs> I can tell you pretty much there was a lot of patients, I think, that, were admitted and ended up staying longer than they needed to in a lot of cases with some of this also. So uh, simply so a lot of these hospitals could recoup a lot of their money. You know, I mean, that's kind of a sad mm-hmm. thing too. And, right. you know, I, I don't think a lot of people realize the, the difference in the typical day charge for, you know, a floor hospital bed versus an ICU bed either. I think I was looking at it recently and, and I think the average cost for just a normal hospital bed on average is around like 15 grand a day mm-hmm. or something like that. Just something. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, 
10 to 15. I, I can't remember the exact figure, but I mean, it's, it's pretty expensive. But once you go to ICU, though, that jumps up to like 40, 45,000 ish, you know, a day. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, once again, not not talking bad about anybody per se, but uh, those hospitals got to make their money back somehow. And ironically enough, a lot of them ended up making a lot of their money back and more by the end of the year. You know, from but yeah. at any rate, um, that kind of was well digressed a little bit there, but sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's that's completely all right. Um, you actually made me think of something. A friend of mine sent me an article um, from the Telegraph, and the the article was saying that for every three people that died of COVID two people died because of the lockdowns because they weren't able to get their elected, you know, procedures and, you know, what they call elective, but, you know, for cancer treatments and this, that, and the other. And I was like, man, I mean, that's criminal, you know, just the, the, it, and this ties in with the whole fear aspect, the, the way that they implemented on society, this lockdown and, and forced people out of work and, and, created these health scares that eventually cost a bunch of people their lives that may not have died otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely feel you. And, um, to go an extra step there too, I still want to see the most, I, you know, the, the irony is I can't even find, I've looked for it. I can't even find the figure of how many people, uh, died from suicide and, and other mental illnesses during all this too. I can't find it either. And you know, yeah, I, I've looked, I can't find it. Yeah. Either. I, I wonder if that's a, a weird coincidence that you can't find that statistic either. But um, yeah, I mean, I just, it, it's sad. And the, the saddest part about all of this is simply not being able to question without a bunch of other people coming out of the woodwork and basically calling you a grandma and grandpa killer <laughs> or, or throwing shade for just wondering for wondering just exactly how valid all of this was and well you do have to sympathize somewhat with their with their point of view because if all the 70 year olds died who would they vote for <laughs> yeah i mean, I mean the, the, the thing is, you know, there'd be no more boomers around, man. We can't we can't live without our boomers. We got to keep the boomers around. <laughs> well, you know, everybody dies someday. You know, so, I mean, yeah. th that's just reality. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, as of right now, it's reality. So, I mean, <laughs> the, the thing is, is I I think that the, the biggest problem in all this was just there was so much in, intentional fear, I think, put in people's minds that what little bit of basic discussion that people could have had with all this just went out the window, and people were using a lot of exceptions to the rule um, as th the kind of um, decision maker in their mind as to whether or not they should or shouldn't do things, rather than just the blatant facts of the matter, which, you know... I'm sorry there. <laughs> I, you're never from, from what I've seen, you're never going to be able to commit. I mean, I don't get me wrong. It's like I said the other day, I want to be convinced that all of this stuff was worth it. Like I really, I really would be because that meant that would then mean that the year that I spent away from my family 
just feeling like I had to provide income and, you know, keep everything rolling and stuff was worth it. And all the extra people that died outside of, of, you know, that we just brought up, you know, they, they didn't necessarily die for no reason. Um, I really want those things to, to be validated. I really do. But from what I've seen and I mean, even other really intelligent epidemiologists, epidemiologists, virologists, um, even some other, um, you know, uh, pathologists that I know that I've talked to and had long discussions with about a lot of this, even, even the ones that are, def- you know, or, or the mask defenders and, um, you know, just the very science-based statistic defenders and all of this, all the ones I've talked to have agreed that there was no need for a lockdown there. There, I mean, it was, it was beyond overkill. And what and what a lot of people need to realize is what we did wasn't a true lockdown or a quarantine anyway. What well, what we did was a joke. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, it, it was it was just enough. It was just enough to to basically cripple an economy. And there was no way that what any kind of measure they were putting into place, um, there was no way that it was going to contain anything. I mean as long as people are, are allowed to get out and be around each other, I don't care if they're wearing masks or not. I mean, in 95, you might be able to argue a little bit more or whatever, but like if people are in proximity to each other, some degree or another, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to be exposed to, to not right. just COVID, but everything, you know I mean? Right. So, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, we we're, we have to live with it now. I mean, it's done. What's what's done is done. Right. But yeah. I mean, even the even the people that I know and trust. I mean, I mean, we've been able to have some good discussions um, about a lot of this stuff. But I mean, the one thing, even it's like my one pathologist friend. Um, he was just like, well, I mean, okay, mandate masks. Go ahead. Um, you know, go ahead and just mandate them nationwide everywhere but leave the stuff open, like leave restaurants open. And, and let's just be real. The whole restaurant thing is the prime example of, of why all of these measures were basically a giant joke. Like you're, you're telling me that I got to wear a mask in to a building until I sit down and then it's okay. Not to like, what, what the hell is that? I mean, come on airplanes too. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we got a social distance, all, all the way up until we sit right on top of each other in this little tube. Yeah, it's it's so it's so dumb, and and I'm sorry, you know, if if anybody, I mean, you're like I said, you're welcome to disagree. Okay, whatever. I mean, but I, you're never going to be able to convince me that that's rational. <laughs> I'm sorry, right. but yeah, yeah. Well, you had also talked about um how how different it was going in, in your traveling, how different it was each job you took, which I found that interesting. Oh yeah. Because there was a, there was a point in time. I mean, at some point in time, there's standard operating procedure that takes hold. And we're like, okay, this works. We understand this works and this is what we're going to do. And, and you were talking about how it's just, it's been so sporadic everywhere you've gone. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's um, I mean, the biggest thing is with the PPE, um, I mean, there was, there's places that were kind of like, okay, 
Um, we're going to give you pretty much everywhere that you that you go, you had to wear some kind of mask the whole shift, you know, or whatever. I and mean, the majority of the time, at least when you're around patients and stuff. Right. Excuse me. So basically, I mean, in the very beginning, the irony was is that they were even like, okay, cloth masks go. I mean, a lot of places you're like, okay, I mean, even cloth masks, you, you go in and and you can wear one as long as you've got something covering your face, which that was one of the biggest um, hurdles mentally for me to jump was, okay, so you've been telling me for the past however many decades now that cloth masks don't do anything, and if I would have worn a cloth mask into work, like, even a month or two (laughs) before... Before I I did, like I would have been right. laughed at and probably like just fired on the spot or whatever, you know, or or right. reprimanded. And now it's now it's like not only is it okay, it's like we encourage this, you know. Um, yeah. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, there was such a scare initially about there being such a lack of PPE that I mean, still to this day. I mean, you you end up wearing kind of the same, you know, surgical mask or just basic mask or whatever for a whole like twelve hour shift, pretty much. I mean, some places they'll make you wear the same. Others you can, um, or stuffs more. They make it more readily available, so you can you can dispose of a, of a mask if you go into a an isolation room of some kind. But like everywhere's kind of been different. In 95s, you're supposed to wear for, you know, reuse for multiple days in a lot of places, which any kind of PPE, if you would have gotten caught reusing at all, like before all of this stuff happened, like you would have gotten your nuts slammed in a drawer and like, you know, reprimanded on the spot. Like, (laughs) you know, that would be like an instant major write up, you know, because of worries across contamination. Then like overnight, all of a sudden. Oh, it's okay. And not only is it okay, we need to do it because we might run out of this or run out of that. But the irony is, is I never worked in one place. I never worked in one place where there was a PPE shortage, not one. And I'm not saying that there wasn't everywhere, but all the places that I worked, there wasn't really a PPE shortage. If nothing else, they were hoarding this stuff. Like it was, I mean, there were places that I worked where, you know, the extra PPE and, and stuff were under lock and key under so-and-so's, you know, office or whatever. So people couldn't get to right. it. You know, they were afraid everybody was going to make off with it or whatever. And and so, you know, we're reusing, we're, we're like reusing the, these masks and, and these different forms of PPE and stuff because they're scared of it, you know, not being available. But you kind of, you know, it... it the whole logic there didn't make sense really for me either. Um, right. You know, I mean, it, like I said, that, that, that was the, the, the PPE thing was, was the biggest variance and in, in discrepancy as far as how different places were, were doing all that. Um, you know, some, and then like their, their um, donning and doffing procedures and things like that, you know, the order, like, I'm glad I missed out on this, but a couple of places I was at, they said that there were like 
you know, supervisors or administrative people or, or um, you know, infection control people, like, standing outside of these patient rooms and stuff, like, monitoring how, you know, either nurses or RTs or whoever were, like, putting on and taking off this, you know, the gowns and equipment and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I mean, what, how much is that really going to, I mean, like, like sitting there and, and peering over your shoulder and, and trying to make someone else's job that much more difficult isn't really going to get you any further either, <laughs> you know? Um, right. Yeah. It's just going to create a more tense work environment, you know? So, right. Um, luckily, a lot of those places stopped doing that <laughs> before I got to them. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just little variances and, and how, um, I mean, there were some places that were that weren't even letting people use N95s at first. They were just letting them use Pappers, which you know the Pappers. Yeah. I don't know if you know what those are. Those are those those, those like hoods that you put on with like the um, yeah yeah the the tube that goes in the back and it's got the little fan. The, yeah. the You know the air purifier circulator thing. So I mean yeah yeah and you know like it, like I said I mean it was literally different from place to place to place and. There, I mean, it was funny too how quick things changed. Also, from okay, if you have a certain type of unit or if you have a certain assignment, like you're not supposed to have COVID patients, and th- like those policies changed within like a week. <laughs> like it's like okay, well, if you have the neonatal intensive care unit, you don't have COVID patients in your assignment. You've got the parts, but the problem was is like in some of the places they were having to start supposedly putting these COVID patients like everywhere. Right. So there really wasn't anywhere that you could have an assignment that didn't have COVID. So, you know, within like a week time span be like, all right, well, what you're going to do now is you're going to go do your checks and stuff in the NICU. And then you're going to, um, just not go back there unless they absolutely need you. And then you're going to have to rechange your scrubs and stuff before you go back you know, and right. just that and the other. And, and I mean, stuff was changing constantly. Um, even just the places I was at, even just the times that I was there, let alone everywhere across the country. And yeah, it's, it's just weird. I mean, and the whole eyewear thing too, I never understood. Like, so one of the places I was at, it was okay forever to like, uh, not wear, not necessarily have to wear eyewear unless you're in, contact with covid patient like if you were going to go in and give a neb to a covid patient like you had to wear eyewear and stuff in those rooms but like in the other parts of the hospital you didn't have to which made total sense to me until i come back to work another day and they're like okay well you got to wear eyewear like everywhere now i'm like what good is that gonna do it's an aerosol like an aerosol can get in and around eye shields yeah like this makes no damn sense well, it's it's policy right. now. Got to do it. Okay, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's, and yep. you know, I mean, going other places, it, they don't care. If it makes you feel better, if it makes you feel better, PPE um, requirements in every industry is like that. Doesn't surprise me. I used me. to work for. Uh, I used to work for a company uh, moving steel steel bars is what we did. Hmm. And so I was running a flatbed hauling steel bars. These bars weighed about 30,000 pounds a piece, but we had to wear a hard hat. 
I guess so that people like you had to pick fragments out of our brain when they were trying to <laughs> determine what killed us. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of fucking good that would have done. So what you're saying is a lot of those people died from COVID, right? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, we can get into that. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the one of the next segues, I guess. But uh, but yeah. So yeah. Well, yeah. I need to get off. Uh, I need to get off probably in the next 15 minutes. I got to get back on the road. So when we when we cover that, we'll just we'll wrap it up after that. Okay. Well, like I said, I mean, as far as that goes, there's there's a lot of um, yeah, there's been a lot of discrepancies, but you know, I mean, once once in in general, once I found out just the overall discrepancies in the numbers and how they were being reported, and I guess this is just as good of a time to segue into that kind of stuff as any. Um, you right. know, I mean, the once I found out how they were reporting the cases and also the the deaths, I it just it it pretty much sold me that everything that was being done for the most part was just being done out of complete irrational judgment, and um, right, you know, politics. Unfortunately, I think we're involved in a lot of it, but I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is the the case numbers that are being reported, like whenever you see on like CNN or whatever, oh, four thousand, blah blah blah, new cases in a day in this area or whatever. Well, they report that and portray that like that means like four thousand something new people, but in reality, right. all that means is just positive tests. So basically, like say you know you end up uh, testing positive and you have to stay home until you have a negative result. Like if you have 10 subsequent positive results before you get that negative that lets you go back to work, each of those 10 positive results are reported as cases. So like, so basically like, you know, you can, (laughs) I mean, and like there's no, there's no designation in, in people. It's just positive results, and that's how those are reported. Right. You know, so a lot of people don't realize that. Once I found that out, I was just like, "So you're telling me one person can count as like eight or ten potentially, and this is happening like possibly all over the country?" I was just like, "You gotta be, right. you gotta be shitting me." So it was a big rip. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like an election. Just because Biden got 81 million votes, it doesn't mean it was 81 million different people. He just got 81 million bucks. <laughs> well, yeah, once again, there's uh there's a lot of um Oh, I feel I feel the same about Trump too. Yeah, so don't yeah. don't don't think I'm picking sides. Oh no, here. no. I I don't. I mean, it, yeah. I, I had that debate with some with some friends and stuff too and you know, they're just so you know, just so mindset that there could be no real fraud and this that and the other to any major degree and especially with the mail-in ballots and this, that, and the other. And I'm just like, that's kind of a, a, a very interesting blanket statement to make. But at any rate. It's a very, pri- it's very privileged statement. <laughs> uh, I mean, how privileged do you have to be to have not lost mail in, in at the post uh, through the postal system? Yeah. That's a very privileged position. I don't know, you know, at, at least the, you know, what, a, what admittance they, they had was just like, well, I mean, it would be negligible as far as the, the overall impact, but anyway, yeah. And then like, you know, especially once I, and then after that, once, once I heard, you know, these they're basically, you know, the, the people started 
showing up in ER with gunshot wounds and stuff. And, you know, they had COVID at the same time. So it was, you know, ruled a death, you know, with COVID or whatever. And that with COVID yeah. and yeah. that's the Play, playing those word games. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I find it extremely hard to believe that 500,000 people have died from COVID. They, they haven't. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. just, there's no way <laughs> just after, after well, seeing what I've seen, even, even the people, I mean, you, and that's not even making the argument with the whole, you know, the comorbidity thing, you know, with, um, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just, I'm sorry if, if someone comes in with, if they, they in a car wreck and they're mangled mm-hmm. and they just so happen to have COVID at the same time, they didn't die of COVID. They died from a damn car wreck. It's same, same right. thing with a gunshot wound, you know? Right. But, you know, I mean, I don't know how much the numbers were skewed in that regard, but, you know, probably not obviously near as much as, um, the overall, like the case thing, but, um, but yeah, I mean, geez, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's gotta be, you know, not an insubstantial number, I wouldn't think, but. Well, I think, I think the flu was the only COVID death the media didn't cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing too, that a lot of people don't realize also is, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of places that were testing for the flu, but that was only usually after, in a lot of cases, they tested negative from COVID first, right. you know, because you don't get, yeah. you don't get shit for, you know, for reimbursement or anything extra. Right. Bad. Well, and, and we need to, we need to get in, we need to say that too. A lot of this boiled down to the money that the federal government, whether the Medicare system or whatever was paying out to these hospitals mm-hmm. for testing these people with COVID. I mean, typically if somebody gets shot in the head, you're not going to test them and see if they have the flu. You're not going to test them and see if they had a damn cold. The only reason they were testing them is because they could get money if they tested positive. Correct. Right. So there, there was no other reason. And I've heard it said it was anywhere between 13,000 and 39,000 per case that of, of a positive test. So there was no other reason to be counting those people other than it was, it was a scam, Mm -hmm. you know, and a way of laundering money. Yeah. I mean, whatever verbiage or terminology you want to use. I mean, the, the reality is, is, is hospitals got more money for COVID cases or COVID, you know, instances than, than not period. I mean, however you want to look at that is however you want to look at that, but that's the reality. I mean, they were getting, they were getting more, reimbursement for people with COVID than not. So, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, like I said, it it all goes back to the terminology and, um, Hey, you know, I mean, if, if you're allowed to, to use this particular system in a certain way and and that actually is playing by the rules in that given moment, then it it is what it is once again. So, but yeah. yeah, but I mean, is there anything else that, that you want to cover real quick before you got to skedaddle or? Uh, well, I mean, um, there was this whole situation last year about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and uh, its its utility in uh, in in treating COVID. But I'm not sure how familiar you are you are with that subject. Um, a little bit. Um, 
The best I can tell you is the places that the, the the one or two places that I was at that were using the hydroxychloroquine, they did say they did have a lot of good treatment outcomes with it, but I think that there was a concern in some instances over the cardiac side effects that it mm-hmm. excuse me that it provides that so they stopped using it in a lot of cases. Um, okay. As far as the the others, I'm I don't really have much experience with those, but the one place in particular that I was at that, that did use hydroxychloroquine a lot, um, they said that that they were able to eliminate like the you know the COVID aspect a lot quicker, but they said it in a lot of patients they were seeing some some cardiac side effects they didn't want, which I mean who knows necessarily without a long term you know study whether or not those could be caused just from right. know, byproduct of just having COVID or whatever. But um, there was other friends that I talked to about though that that worked in places they're using a lot and they said generally very good things about the treatment outcome with it. Um, but <laughs> you know, I, once again, that's just one of those. Well, it's, yeah, it's the same situation we, we have right now with the, um, with the vaccines. I mean, we're so close to the treatment. We've had very little time to examine what long-term, you know, effects are going to take place, which, which is why there are so many people like myself that are kind of like, ah, I'll wait. I'll see. Like, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm not really extremely afraid of the virus. Therefore, I'm kind of like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. You know, I'm in my early 40s. I, I think I'll be all right. You know? Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is you have a exponentially higher chance of dying in a fiery truck, tra- you know, dra- truck crash fire. Gosh, say that really yeah. fast three times. Truck crash fire. <laughs> you have a much higher chance of dying that way than you do of of this virus you know getting this virus um you know i mean i think the last statistic i saw i think you've got technically like a three percent chance of dying just from something random every day right Right. just stepping out your door or not even stepping out your door and you have a 99 point especially in our demographic because we're kind of close to the same age I mean, we have a ninety-nine point like nine five percent chance of coming out of it okay if we get it. Which I I still have a very hard time believing that. I mean, I don't care if you're vaccinated or not. Everybody in this country at some point in time is going to end up with it. I mean, if it's if it's right. you know, especially with it mutating and and I just uh, David actually sent me a a video of um, I don't know if you saw it or not that um. Uh, virologist who's basically saying that the mass immunization during the pandemic is actually going to have a lot worse long-term repercussions. Um, yeah, because basically we're replace, we're replacing or, or, or helping our immune system now with the one original strand, but we're, we're not going to be able to replace, you know, what's what's been uh lost in the in the memory so to speak with our you know it's in other words like with if we start encountering the mutations the the mutations are already going to have 
a knowledge base to work off of because we've already been immunizing during a pandemic and getting the virus used to the antibodies, the treatment treatment that we're giving. And it's going to basically be, we're in the process of like, they, they equivalented it to like boot camp, for example, like you, you want a soldier to go to war, you send them to boot camp to train them for that without putting them in war yet. But that would be like letting the enemy kind of spectate the boot camp, you know, and, um, kind of like, I don't know, basically let them like give them the inside information so that when they go to war, they already know how to fight you essentially. Um, right. It's like train training Al Qaeda before Al Qaeda attacks us. Yeah. And then also making kind of the analogy too of, um, using an antibiotic for, you know, a bacterial infection, but not finishing the whole course. You know, it's, it's right. kind of like the, the equivalent they gave for, for this immunization during the pandemic. So it made a lot of sense to me as far as at least, once again, whether he's right or, or wrong, it, it, it's a question that should be asked, you know. And um, Right. Well, and that's the problem right now is we're not supposed to ask questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, I know, man. It's Trust me, it's been the most frustrating year of my life, I think, uh, career-wise. I mean, I've been, I can imagine. like I said, I've been doing this for 16 years and I've never felt misled or just overall jerked around or lied to as much as I, as I ever have in this last year. And, uh, really just kind of feeling more or less powerless to do anything about it, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but yeah, man, I'm overall, things are all right though, for the most part. I mean, the only blessing that's come out of it for me is, is I managed to pay off a lot of debt. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm able to fix up my house that I that's needed fixed up for about a decade now and, and do stuff with it and yeah. other odds and ends. But it sucked being away from, from home as much as I have been this past year. But Trust me, I know all about that. Yeah, man. yeah. But yeah, but yeah man, um, anything else you want to – you know, I don't know how much more well, time you just, got, but uh, – I, I got to get rolling here in a minute. But uh, just plug anything you got to plug, man. We'll leave it at that. I think that's a lot of information. And if uh, any of my listeners have any questions that we didn't cover, I'll have you back on. We'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could probably go on another hour of this stuff if we, if we let ourselves, but uh, um, (laughs) I could, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can talk about almost anything for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anymore. I, I kind of can too, which is ironic because I've been such an introvert most of my life, which kind of goes against, like, I shouldn't like podcasting and, and stuff as much as I do. But I've come to really enjoy it, which is ironic considering I'm really not that much of an extrovert at all. But uh, me too. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, anybody uh, that wants to check anything out, what I do for the most part, can just go to my website at um, Jonathan J O N A T H A N Munier M U N N I E R. So Jonathan Munier dot com, all one word, and um, a lot of links to my stuff are on there and my music stuff and different odds and ends. If you want to check out, um, like the other podcasts that I do with a bunch of music buddies, odds and ends, stuff like that, just search, uh, the too many strings podcast. Uh, it's on pretty much every major platform. Um, I also do a, a falconry podcast too. Um, that's falconry told, um, and that's a whole other conversation we can get into some other time about about that if you want. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'll have to go listen to your podcast. I know nothing about that. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting hobby slash sport for sure. But uh, or even you can even also call it a, an alternative lifestyle. But but at any rate, um, you know I also have a a couple odds and ends music projects. But um, yeah, just go onto my YouTube link uh, that you can I think that you can get to from my website and stuff. Um, like I said, you can see some of the different little things that I've done and. And, um, yeah, just go from there. I guess it's a good starting point. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put it links in, uh, in the show notes so people can find you. Cool. Yeah. Like I said, um, anything else I can just get you after the fact or whatever, but, um, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's been good. Uh, kind of meeting you for the first time here. And, uh, like I enjoyed listening to you and David's episode too, you know, whenever, uh, you oh, know, I appreciate you, that. He, he was actually texting me just a few minutes ago. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's a good dude, and um, like I said, I yeah. uh, I'll have to go back and listen to some of your other episodes too, because um, from your podcast, because there's a lot of things that I've wanted to kind of start educating myself on that I know enough to be dangerous, and you know, basically just a step past ignorant <laughs> about, but I would yeah. like to learn a yeah. lot more of, and um, I I don't like really necessarily identify myself with any political party either, but if I was to and I would probably be mostly libertarian. So, um, exactly. you know, but, um, I think a lot of people would, honestly, they just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. That's what my daughter, my daughter tells me. She's like, everybody's a libertarian. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> if you go and play scandal, pick and choose, well, it's a game that was made for you to lose. Times it's the same old worn out story, same old lines. They're all pointing dirty fingers in hypocrisy, bragging on their feet of mediocrity again. Never really making any kind of change, but they keep on getting reelected, and I find that strange. Fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms Yeah, I said fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms What's it gonna take for you to see That we're living in a rigged democracy Take it.